0: You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first future film, The Alternate, is out now on digital DVD 2B in all the places.
0: I'm Liz Manisha. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently making others, including a horror comedy called Best Friends Forever. I also am a producer's rep and I like distribution. This week, we welcome director Mark Saltarelli on the show to talk about his feature documentary, Studio One Forever, all about America's iconic gay disco. Eric recorded this interview at the Austin Film Festival. So big thanks to Eric for going out and grabbing this. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. Arik, how you doing? Doing well.
1: You know, getting excited about jumping into indie filmmaking and making some uh, movies soon. I had some progress on the idea that I wanted to make this movie with my daughter. Yes. Where she stars and I kind of wrote out the beat sheet of it the other day. So that's kind of fun. I don't know if she's actually going to do it. <laughs> like, like, will she actually... Do it or will she just run around me in circles like she normally does? I think that's probably more likely. But it, it's a fun experiment. And then maybe I'll try it now when she's two and a half and then try it again when she's three or three and a half and then try again when she's four and see what happens. But yeah, I mean, you know, also continuing to write, which is good. I'm uh, excited to to get some ideas down for this movie. Yeah, I don't know. I think I talked about it in a couple episodes ago, like how like a friend of, of mine was like, just make whatever movie you can for no money, you know, just do it. And like, I had a a couple ideas like that, but then I think recently I've been thinking more like, just like finish the script that you've been writing, get that done. And then like, write the next script, you know? And like, if that's a new idea, like based off of what, you know, this new idea to make a movie for super cheap, or if it's the, the, the other idea that you had in your mind, I think either one, but like, I kind of think the other like I was it was so funny because I was thinking about ideas like they could be done easily. And then it's they just started to like come back to this other idea I had where it's like, yeah, that could be done pretty easily. So I'm like, why don't you just write the one that I've been thinking about for a couple of years and like have some outline for and like just see if I can make that for like, you know, inexpensive rather than like trying to construct a whole new movie idea that could be made for no money. You know, yeah. I don't know. That's sort of. I think it's better to go with the idea that you're super passionate with and like trying to like force something into being done cheaply. You know what I mean?
0: Well, it's both, right? Like it's if someone says that to you (laughs) and it excites you and inspires you to get going on something, then they were right. But what it ended up doing is that it inspired you to take on a different project. So, Mm. you know, I think it's I was just as you were talking, I was thinking about how nobody knows anything and we keep on saying opposite pieces of advice every few years <laughs> and ultimately it should be what excites you what inspires you what's going to be rewarding and it sounds like it might be this other script that you won't let yeah. go of
1: yeah and i also thought thought to myself about like oh there's this there's a short script i wrote many years ago that i wanted to make and i was like why don't i just make that and like submit it to film festivals and do the whole thing and i'm like uh, i feel like as soon as i said it out i didn't even say it out loud i just said it in my Sigh. brain and i was just like Ooh, uh, yeah i'd rather make another feature that's so much more exciting you know so i want it all what's going on with you liz what's on your what's happening on your end
0: well no i was just you know we watched joe bob a lot and i was turned i was on a long drive with my my husband and my kids yesterday and i turned to my husband, I was like, God, I just wish we lived in Pittsburgh and had a Tom Savini, and we're friends with a cinematographer, and we could just go out and make, you know, Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead. I was just like, I'm just so hungry for actually a smaller filmmaking community that feels like kind of what you're starting in Vallejo. Like, I'm so hungry for like a band of misfits to go out and prove everyone wrong, kind of idea, and being in Los Angeles, everyone deserves their rate. This is me not trying to cheat someone out of their rate, but it's like very hard to just go out and make something because people's rates are so high and we don't have like go to low budget crew who just is always free and always down to clown on a film set with us. So I'm just thinking, I'm just dreaming of an idea of like improvised filmmaking. How, how nice it would be just to, improvise a film shoot one day. I think that'll be several years from now. Like when the kids can, you know, either work, <laughs> pay their way <laughs> or, or, you know, distract themselves with their activities. But I'm feeling very, I'm starting to feel that hunger to get back now. Right. Like my reserves are allowing me to think about things like that. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But what is also awesome is Patreon. And let me tell you why Patreon's awesome. Because it helps support our show. So every dollar, every cent that's given to this Patreon campaign, which is at www.patreon.com slash podcast, goes towards the making of the show, goes directly to our editor, Jeff Reimut, who's amazing. So check out our Patreon campaign, get access to the many, many, many episodes that are behind the paywall for $1.99 a month. That's $1.99 a month. And without any more delay or jibber jabber, here's... Our producer, Eric Toms, chat with Mark Saltarelli.
2: Mark Saltarelli, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Give me the elevator pitch for Studio One Forever.
3: Okay. Studio One was the iconic gay disco. It was the first, if not at least one of the first gay discos in America. It was housed in this amazing, old, ugly factory building. It was built in 1920 that actually built cameras that classic Hollywood films use for Gone with the Wind. And, you know, So it had this whole Hollywood history from its inception. Fast forward to 1974, an optometrist named Scott Forbes decided that he wanted to open up his own gay disco. And he took over the building and proceeded to, in the, really at the height of gay liberation, the beginnings of it, the excitement of it, where gay people were finally not afraid to, you know, be who they are, despite there being so much homophobia and hatred out there. Prior to Studio One, and this is an elevator pitch, but (laughs) it's sort of a lot of things you have to kind of understand first. Prior to Studio One, I mean, the, the bars were essentially back alley, you have to had to sneak in. And this was open. And people, young gay men could Be themselves in this place mm-hmm. uh, outside of the world that you know they, they were pretty much a target.
2: So now, of course, Studio One happened quite a long time ago. So you're filming a lot of interviews, you're filming some, some footage, you bring everyone back to Studio One now. There's a, there's a whole, of course, like the saving of the building and all of that. But so, how many days did you actually shoot?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, we I, I always knew that the third act would be this event, that's kind of what drew me to it. It was one last bringing back the old days of Studio One and the back lot, which was a connected club, before they tore the building down. So we, we were able to gain access to the building for four days prior to this party happening. And we brought in some of the original bartenders, you know, who started way back in the 70s, who, who survived all that era. It was around for nearly 20 years, this place. We brought Melissa Rivers. Her mother in the early 80s was actually the first person the first celebrity to help out in the, in the AIDS crisis that came about. Liz Taylor usually gets credit, which is great. She did some great work, but, but Joan Rivers was the first. And when we got in touch with Melissa Rivers, she was just so thrilled that finally she could give her mother you know, the credit that she deserves. Ironically, no AIDS organization in LA had ever honored her, mm-hmm. they did in New York. So this was a way of Melissa honoring her. And the story is pretty, pretty powerful. You know, they they put on this sh- this fundraiser for APLA, and they had death threats, and they had to have Melissa go to school with bodyguards. And and as Melissa says, she she wanted the whole family to be there because if the building's blown up, you know, they'll all go down together. That's uh, the way the world was back then.
2: Yeah, I have to say, uh, I started off as a Sam comic, and Joan Rivers does not get nearly enough credit that she deserves. Yeah. She was an absolute pioneer and just a great comic.
3: Yeah, oh, amazing. <laughs> Nobody like her, n- never will be again.
2: What was, I don't, I know, of course, there's distribution and all that stuff. Can you tell us about what the rough budget was?
3: Okay, well, uh, we had about <laughs> about 5,000 in the beginning. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, a lot. Uh, <laughs> <thanks, laughs> You're really my, rolling it. Yeah, uh, thanks <laughs> to my brother and uh, a couple of other people. And we, we developed, we, we had a fiscal sponsor, so we were basically a nonprofit, and we were taking in donations. Fortunately, I own my own camera i do do that as well and i do my own editing Mm -hmm. so there wasn't a whole lot of money we needed throughout the process i mean it started way back in 2019 and and covid hit after we got those initial shoots and sequences filmed but in a way it was a blessing because i was able to you know have free time during the lockdown to really go through all of this this 8K raw footage, not a good idea for documentary, by the way. But my DP <laughs> wanted to do that, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's massive, a lot of hard drives, files, yeah. And I had to get a new computer just to deal with it. Yeah, I loved your podcast title, making Thank movies, internet, but I may say making documentary movies is even harder. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I started out making narratives and sort of fell into documentaries the last several, well, before this even, and I'm anxious to go back to narrative because it's just. It doesn't take as long.
2: Yeah. Everybody who is on our crew, we're all filmmakers. And I'm a firm believer that documentary people are just insane because <laughs> I go out, I have a shot list, I know where we're going, the yeah. we thing. You guys are just, you have a camera and you're right. hoping to catch lightning in a bottle.
3: Yeah, that's basically, it. I mean, I start off, you know, I researched it. There was two lesbians who actually started the Save the Factory movement mm-hmm. and they posted online to get a historical preservation status for the building. This document that had that was about 60 pages and it's sort of buried online and I read it and I was blown away because I had no idea all of the history from the 70s. You know, I actually attended in the 80s as a young Catholic guy <laughs> going mm-hmm. to Loyal and Marymount. And uh, so I had some memories of it. I thought it was kind of a crazy place. I assumed that it was kind of a cheap ripoff of Studio 54, uh-huh. you know, because that's legendary. And one of the surprises is that it actually inspired 54 because Steve Rubell and Halston were friends of Scott Forbes and they came to visit and a few years later, there you go. But but, but the original, I, funny, I looked at it recently, the original outline, except for the ending, which I always knew would be there, it, it's pretty much intact, but so many things kind of came along. Finding the story, Michael Koth, the bartender, the his story is, is kind of heartbreaking and really makes the movie take flight in terms of showing you know that, that even though it's 40 years later that place or those times that era for those who survived it you know it'd never go away it's yeah. always going to be with you you know the, the film is sort of like all of the interviews were you know we'd start with people recalling the, their excitement and you know coming of age times in the 70s you know and then of course the 80s came and there was like a black cloud of this disease that was just taking so many young people you know yeah. and nobody knew what it was about and the government didn't care unlike COVID you know <laughs> if imagine if the government had actually cared and got on it you know hundreds of thousands of lives would have could have been saved.
2: Yeah, famously Reagan didn't even yeah. mention the word AIDS no. in all of his eight years
3: until yeah the very end. But yeah. it was a little too late at yeah. that point. Yeah. So uh, so gay people had to get together and form a political movement just to save themselves, and that led to marriage equality. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, without AIDS, marriage equality may not have ever come about yeah. if we hadn't joined together.
2: Uh, I will say personally, my sister's a lesbian, and so I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so we were all absolutely in the streets, marching and asking oh. for that sort of thing. I mean, and I, honestly, there was a big section of us. That was like, listen, we're not going to get it, but maybe we'll allow people to see like their loved ones in the hospital.
3: Like maybe yeah, we can get well, that. Yeah, yeah.
2: And so thank goodness that it finally did go through. Now, what was your shooting schedule like?
3: Well, OK, like those were the, f- the very first days. And then I was able to kind of figure out what else I needed and who I needed. And one of the most important people was Cheetah Rivera, who... You know, he's a famous Broadway star. And I, I knew based on the research that because of her and Liza Minnelli booking the room for the Backlot, which was the cabaret theater connected to this gay disco, it made the whole place you know blow up. And every star from the golden era of Hollywood, from Cary Grant was there quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Betty Davis, all of these people would be going to this gay club. So it was like the first mixing of these two worlds. And that's kind of really what sold me more than anything, because I don't think anything really what, it, it, yeah, maybe certainly not back then and it, nothing was like that. Yeah. So I reached out to Cheetah's people, and she was absolutely thrilled oh, to great. be a part of it, uh, because she wanted to say, yes, indeed, it was me, yeah, who, who made it happen. So the story is, briefly, she was in rehearsals for the musical Chicago by Bob Fosse, and Bob Fosse had a heart attack, and that gave her like six months free, without anything to do, because he was recovering. So Liza convinced her to come and take her one-woman show to Los Angeles and invited all of her friends, and the whole place blew up mm-hmm. from there. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the people. I, since we were doing a New York trip, for we got a few other people from New York, like the Native American from the village people, mm-hmm. Felipe Rose, who's a trip, rented a, a studio and, and did a bunch of New York interviews. And it was just kind of one interview at a time. During COVID time, I obviously, most of the people were older, mm-hmm. so it would just be me, you know, with masking and everything. And it was, we were far enough away and a yeah. few people were okay with that. So it was just kind of me, an assistant, one-on-one interviews for a while, collecting stories. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean I must have, I don't know, sixty hours of, of interview footage. And and then figuring out the structure, which was really a, a process. But I had a lot of amazing producers who worked with me on that. The through line is of course the Saving of the factory building, which is sort of a stand in for saving of our history, you know, our, our past. Mm-hmm. And Ironically, it's taken so many years to get this finished. It, it's a great thing because when marriage equality happened, when, when I thought, OK, wow, everything is great. You know, gay people are accepted and we're <laughs> like first class citizens. And now look at what's happening. It's all coming yeah. around. So this film right now, I think, is especially important in this moment to to get out there because younger generation, they have no idea what happened before them to get the rights that they take for granted. And those rights are, you know, very, very fragile. Yeah,
2: as we have seen in the last couple of years, things that we took as sacrosanct have been taken away. Yeah. And so it's it's this constant fight to, to keep what ground we have. Yeah. I want to talk to you as a documentarian. So you, of course, you talked about finding the story. Right. Now, because you were filming and you were the editor, were those two different hats that you're wearing or as a storyteller, were you able to kind of like, oh, I, you know, as when you were filming, I can kind of see what the, the yeah. shape of this thing is going to be. And so therefore you're able to kind of manipulate what you were filming and when you were filming, or did it, the majority of it come of just like you were just looking at the 60 hours of footage and be like, oh, okay, we should use this and I'll put this here.
3: No, I mean initially the the first interview with it, some of the people was the last, but for the characters that I ended up, you know, following through, I had multiple interviews when I realized I needed to get more of the story. When I found out Michael Cost's climactic story, I, I needed to get that in, and that's like one of the most powerful things. So being the editor just saved not only a lot of money, but it it you know in the beginning I, I was. Playing with so many different concepts, seeing how they worked, and then I I felt I had something good enough to show to some producers. And Stephen Israel is uh, one of my main producers, and Michael Alden, and they really kind of guided me uh, along, uh, gave me a you know a second pair of eyes. They could see things you know that I was too close to it that I couldn't see, and kind of just figuring it out. And since it's also about preserving our history, LGBTQ history that people are trying to like erase and make us less than human, I guess. Finding Natalie Garcia, who is this young lesbian woman. It's an interesting story. I was working on some telethon pieces for Project Angel Food. I've been working with them for many years. It's a great organization in Los Angeles. And the guy who I was filming said, found out i was making a film about studio one he didn't really know what it was but he said oh my god this woman i met at a party she found these boxes of slides in a garage that were about to be thrown out and then two seconds later i'm getting a text from my friend who was also at that party it's sort of like all of these things came together like this had to come to me to, yeah. yeah to be a part of the film and those slides are pretty precious and they were on the verge of being thrown in the trash. Uh, they were basically from late 70s and 1980, New Year's, uh, uh, amazing stills of that time.
2: Uh, you had mentioned, so you were, you were, did some initial filming and then, of course, the lockdown happens. Mm-hmm. You're able to cut together some of the footage that you already have. Were you then able to use that, kind of put that together as a pitch package? So like when you're going out, like, listen, now let's go ahead and like, based on this stuff, let's go ahead and bring these producers in.
3: Yeah, basically, I, I put together like a 10 minute pitch reel. The, the first Rough cut was low, like two and a half hours. It was really loose, but I didn't, obviously, I didn't want to show that. So I, I put together kind of the, the, the highlight beats of the film and showed it to Stephen. And he, he really thought it had some potential and, and he helped me. It, the reason I say documentaries are really hard is because, especially if you're making a documentary with music like, like this is, it's disco music, mm-hmm. all of the money has to come in at the end, basically. You know, I was able to scratch and claw you know to get get it to a place on my own fortunately and I always knew that the end is going to be a nightmare and it certainly was you know all of the clips and stills in a documentary you have to have I had two amazing archival producers who created spreadsheets and got a, a fair use attorney it's just like there are hundreds and hundreds of stills and clips in there and fortunately in that case most of the clips were deemed fair use to my surprise. Mm-hmm. Music is a whole other story. <laughs> and we, we obviously needed some original music. And Mike Turner is my music supervisor and he, he worked with me and got got us an amazing deal, which is very low. A favored nations deal where everyone agrees to a price or they don't. The original budget for music with the original stuff I had on there was like four hundred and fifty thousand. So obviously we couldn't wow. do that. Okay. Yeah. But we I whittled it down and I got this Star Search winner. <laughs> uh, he 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 just incredible. his he lives for disco jake simpson is his name and he has his own studio with the original instruments and equipment recording equipment from the era and if i couldn't get a particular song i would say can you make something that kind of sounds mm-hmm. you know the same feel the same message and like literally within a day he would be sending me this this stuff and you can't tell the difference. I mean, let's yeah. face it, most of the music in the 80s kind of sounds the same. Right? A lot of synths. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. the 70s, too. But we had to have some original stuff, and we do. I kind of front-loaded it, so you think later you're still hearing original stuff. But oh, um, clever. Clever. And there were, there are libraries of tracks from the era that never went anywhere mm-hmm. that are so much cheaper, so we used some of those. We recorded our own original song for end credits, because that costs a fortune. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, somehow we worked it out. I never want to make another documentary with music, though, because it really was a true nightmare. The whole process, you know, it's been wonderful and depressing because I almost gave up a couple of times in the process, you know, when we had no money and didn't have really a way to finish it after all this work. But something happened. You know, we put the word out. We had some fundraiser screenings. Surprisingly, the people who came to the fundraiser, even though they had money, they didn't give anything sometimes. But we found the two people who really were our angels, and that's Gary Carno and Alan Eichler. And we were able to to pay for the music and the post to get it finished.
2: You have some amazing, you you touched on this a little bit, but you have some incredible interviews in this. And of course, because I have a comedy background, Bruce Valanche is one of my favorites. (laughs) And like, if if you don't know who Bruce Valanche is, if you heard a joke in the 80s or 90s, it was probably written by Bruce. Take me through the process of like getting in touch with some of these celebrities who were there and, you know, where they, as you'd mentioned, that is a little bittersweet because this was this fantastic place. But of course, it was absolutely ravaged by the public sentiment at the time and then also this horrible, horrible disease. Were people, did they want to talk about it Mm. or were they kind of guarded?
3: In most cases, people were desperate to talk about it. Really? Yeah. Just because, you know, that whole. History is, is so untold, and it, it, it just means so much for the people of that community, what they went through. It's their youth, and you know, to, to survive and come out of that, like Bruce Valanche, I've known him for quite a long time, and uh, he's been just so generous with his time, and still is. He's been doing some, some things with me to promote it not only does he provide the funny, obviously, that's just what he does. You can't help it. He's hilarious. But he's also very serious. And, and he he just really loves how it came together and how it kind of takes a a turn. You know, he thought originally that it would just be this kind of fun documentary of a fun time. And Mm -hmm. he he wasn't expecting it to be Mm -hmm. such an emotional impact like it like it has. And and his brain is is incredible. His first interviews, I mean, yeah, he's a genius, not yeah. only in comedy, but, but every, everything else. And, and he has so much knowledge of, of not only gay history, but entertainment history in general. Yeah. First-hand knowledge, you know. He worked with Bette Midler. He 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 wrote the Oscars for yeah. like 15 years. He was the center square on the reboot yeah. of Hollywood Square. I mean, he's an incredible man, and I'm so proud to be his friend.
2: Uh, now, going back to you when you were starting off, so you're a young filmmaker— you started off in narratives. What was that kind of journey for you? How did you start off in that, into that world?
3: I went to film school. I finished at Loyola Marymount LMU, mm-hmm. which is actually a sponsor of this festival, I noticed. yeah, kind of cool. Thanks, Austin. Yeah. And I worked on s- several feature films in, in the late 80s and early 90s, and then sort of moved into post-production era area. And... Over the past 20 years, I've made nine narrative short films that have been in festivals all over the world. I'm pretty proud of them. And then I just started doing more, more documentary work. Also to make a living, I, I, I started doing corporate videos mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Now it's all AI, so I don't think there's much work <laughs> left in that area. And because just because documentary, you know, you don't need a lot of seed money. I've been trying to get a, a feature film Put together, And that's really, really tough. But I think getting through this, this project, it's getting some pretty good recognition around. And Austin is like the most amazing festival. And yep. I'm just, I can't even believe that we were, we got in it and that we're not, we were nominated. Congratulations, so, by the okay, way. I appreciate it. There, there is a, a limited series or a feature of this film narrative that I'm working on. I'm, I've, I'm putting together a treatment for it. And because of the recognition of this documentary, I feel like I can get the funding. In fact, one of my angels is already committed to being the seed funding for oh, it. Congratulations. So, that's amazing. Yeah. I just need to write something amazing. And no it's problem. all right. It's yeah. all right there. Actually, yeah. it's there's so many stories there and even the ones I had to cut out, you know. The, mm-hmm. So, so that's you- been my journey. Yeah.
2: When you were starting off, who were some of the heroes? Who were some of the people that you were looking to that you're, that you were really studying their work?
3: Well, Scorsese for me is, is your great, greatest living filmmaker, you know, and I haven't seen his latest film, but I hear it's pretty amazing. I'm if so you excited can for it. sit yeah. through three and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will, you know, Coppola, I, I mean, I, I just love classic films. Mm-hmm. And so working on, on the documentary and there's a sequence about the time Betty Davis showed up at the back lot and introduced Geraldine Fitzgerald. And I get to say that I made a movie with Betty Davis in it, <laughs> which is pretty cool.
2: Absolutely. Well, did you, when you were starting off and you're like, you know, uh, earlier in your career, who were the people that were kind of mentoring you or who were the people that you reached out to that like, Hey, can you grab a cup of coffee with me? Or, or how did that kind of process work for you?
3: People I worked with, you mm-hmm. know, uh, there was a man named Joe Robertson who sort of was a mentor for me. I worked with a screenwriter, Tom O'Leary, and his his uncle actually financed a lot of our short films. So he, for me, is a mentor and he is in, in memory of, I, I dedicate the film to him, to, mm-hmm. to Park Walk-Up. It's an interesting story about Alan Eichler, who was our, our angel. It, the monies actually came from his boyfriend who was uh, Carlton Carpenter, who was a young man in the 40s, 50s, who was actually in movies with, with, with Debbie Reynolds. And he decided to leave his estate to his two boyfriends, not to his family, because mm-hmm. I guess the family didn't accept him. And the other boyfriend passed away. So the money actually for, to pay for our music is coming from Carlton Carpenter, and he is another one who is commemorated at the end. So from beyond yeah, with Debbie Reynolds, you know, he is helping us <laughs> to get this film. I hope he would like it.
2: Now, of course, inclusion is very important for you and your work. I feel like in the last five to 10 years, there has been kind of a seed change that there has been more inclusion. But have you really seen that, you know, as you know, you're a boots on the ground director. Have you seen that or has it just been kind of fodder for, you know, uh, headlines and for fun blog posts?
3: Oh, oh, absolutely. There's I mean, when I first started, uh, uh, you know, gay. Festivals were very groundbreaking, you know, limited. There, there wasn't a lot of, of gay content. There was a film called Parting Glances. It was the first film that really touched me. I mean, that was maybe one of the very first independent gay films mm-hmm. with Steve Bushimi. And it was made on a shoestring budget. And after seeing that, that's kind of made me realize that that's what I want to do. I want to make films about my people, about, mm-hmm. you know, about gay subject matter that nobody else was really doing mm-hmm. but now it's everywhere you know i mean we're the gay film festivals half of them are are corporate studio films you know mm-hmm. so there's a lot more competition now and and it's wonderful but we still have a long way to go mm-hmm.
2: what would you like to see happen like in the next five ten years what are the sort of things that like if, if you could point to like well, here's where we need to improve
3: hmm that's a good question no, but, yeah, yeah, yeah just more. Yeah, more. I mean, I, I don't want it to be so saturated that you know people like say, okay, enough. We don't want to see gay people anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I just want it to be uh, authentic. The, the representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: that's fair. We're gonna go into our final six questions. We're kind of like rapid fire. Okay. What was the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? And this can be like something you made in the backyard with your friends when you were <laughs> a kid. It's could be a high school project. Uh, okay. Whatever it is.
3: Yeah, I started making uh, home movies with my friends in in uh, before high school even. Yeah, definitely with eight millimeter <laughs> camera, a brownie camera, and I still have them digitized. And it was a vampire film. Ooh! The, the problem was I left a ketchup bottle in the in the shot. So. I regret that. <laughs> that was the blood, you know. Uh, yeah. See,
2: the special effects guys these days, I feel like they've, they've changed. They've gotten a little bit better about that. Okay. Yeah.
3: So, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I did a lot of that with my friends and had screening parties as a child. I mean, that's, it's kind of weird, but that's what I've wanted to do all my life. When I was in Rome, my, for a few years, around age five or six, I, I did television commercials. And I think that's what kind of put the bug in my, in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, have that. Uh, I gave up acting the thought of being an actor because <laughs> that's kind of an impossible dream. Went to school. I was originally going to be a, a, a broadcast journalist and found some film classes and that was it. The first student film I made, I, I can't, I can't even watch it. It's really, it's dreadful. Yeah. My grandmother financed it. <laughs> God bless her. It's like a 28 minute. Between uh, your grandmother yeah. and your
2: brother, you got, you got yeah, those are <laughs> your financers. You're all set.
3: Great family I have. <laughs>
2: What is some of the best filmmaking advice you've ever?
3: Mm. Wow, that's a good one. I guess keep keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, you, you want to tell a million things, and I probably overdid it a little bit, even in the documentary. But, but you've got to you got to be willing to see it and pare it down because less is more.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, tell tell a story. Yeah. What is some of the worst filmmaking advice you've ever gotten?
3: Oh. Well, somebody told me that I have no future as an editor once. So wow. I didn't listen to him. It's a good uh, idea. Yeah. yeah. Worst filmmaking device is... Wow, that's a good one. Hmm. Oh, probably the worst filmmaking advice would be to hire your friends and family as actors. Really? It's much better to get real actors.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I have to say as a SAG member, thank you. I appreciate that. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker?
3: Hmm. I love, you know, all kinds of movies, but I, I really hope to to make something that I'm truly proud of, uh, that, that says something, that moves people. And I think within this story of the documentary that, that that's there, certainly the the result, I mean, the the reaction from people that I've seen after those screenings has been rewarding. They're, they're really so moved. Obviously, my target audience is people who live through it of that age. But my real hope is to get the younger generation. Mm hmm to, to take a look and to you know, learn something and, and understand, you know, what came before them and, and, uh, so that we don't go around it. And-
2: Along those lines, are you doing anything now to kind of give that next generation a leg up? Is there any sort of like outreach that you do? It's just, you know, if somebody comes to you, it like, Hey, would you grab a cup of coffee with me?
3: Oh yeah. I always, if, if somebody wants some advice, I, I do that oh, quite, good. quite a bit.
2: Yeah. Um, whatever I
3: can offer. Yeah.
2: If you could go back in time and give young you some advice, what would it be?
3: Get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Cut
2: your hair, hippie. Yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) I'm just wondering, you know, if I hadn't gone this way, how my life would have been. I actually decided that being a a broadcast journalist was not good because, you know, they're all straight people Mm -hmm. and now (laughs) they're all gay. So, you know, I could be like, could have been Anderson Cooper or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Final question is making movies hard.
3: Making movies is extremely hard, but in the end it's 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 everything. It's it's so worthwhile to sit with an, an audience. Like it was a magical experience when we premiered it at Outfest. Mm-hmm. It was sold out. I mean you can imagine the LA crowd especially. It was sold out, oversold and there was a line around the block of the wow. theater. They had to turn so many people away and my friend Polly Perret from NCIS fame, who is one of my angels as well. She made some nice donations. She she said, I, I want to introduce you. And she introduced me. And it was, I, I was standing there right before we went on. And I said, are we dreaming? It felt like I was dreaming <laughs> because it was four years. And I, I at times I thought it would never happen. And there it was all happening. And people were just so thrilled with the film. So that, that makes a big difference too. Well,
2: thank you on not giving up. Yeah. Uh, so finally... How do people support you? How do people find the film? How do people follow you on social media? Like, uh, what's their call to action here?
3: Well, we have a, a website, Studio One Forever, and that's one spelled out, .com. That goes actually to my website until I can actually create another one. We have a Facebook page, a Studio One Forever Facebook page and, and Twitter. And we are, our fiscal sponsor is the Film Collaborative. We still have that open. If you would like to support us, that would be great. Every every. Donation is tax deductible. Currently, have a, a sales agent who is working on getting us a streaming deal. So you know, fo- follow our website for mm-hmm. details. Hopefully, we'll be on one of the major ones at some point. And like I said, I'm also developing the limited series. And our agent said, "Have you ever thought of a Broadway musical?" And oh. like, we hadn't. But my God, of course, it's perfect. Yeah, Ben Platt as Scott Forbes. Yeah, it's like it lends itself to that. And disco is coming back.
2: Yeah, very much so.
3: So. So that's a whole other thing that just started thinking about.
2: Uh, listen, if you're going, if you're listening right now, <laughs> yep.
1: come on.
0: Do you love making movies as hard, and you want to listen to more episodes?
1: Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com/mmih, and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just one nine nine a
0: month. That's an additional three hundred episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please.
1: But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show
0: since you were the the one talking to him tell us about your chat with mark Salterelli.
2: first off i want to give a big shout out to the austin film festival for setting up this conversation that we had with mark as well as the omni hotel for hooking us up with a fantastic podcasting room that was terrific this was a really emotional conversation because so mark's film Is called Studio One Forever, and it was, of course, it's, as those who just listened to the the interview, it's a story about the first really, like, openly gay disco in the United States in Hollywood, and the story very much goes into during this time of where gay people were really coming to their own, they were really being seen for the first time, maybe really in in a postmodern America, and then almost immediately the AIDS epidemic strikes, and just... All of these men begin dying at a very, very fast, very fast clip. And it's absolutely heart It's just devastating to, to hear this kind of journey that Mark had gone through and talking with all of these people who were at the original club a long time ago and saving this club in Hollywood. So it was it was a difficult chat to go through. But you could tell the the real shining thing was the fact that Mark just absolutely loved this material. He really went to great lengths in order to make sure that it was preserved properly, that this kind of historical record was being shared with other generations to come. And that was really meaningful and just beautiful to to, to listen to.
0: Amazing. All right. Well,
1: thanks, Eric, for the breakdown. Now it's time for You're the Expert. This is a segment where our wonderful producer, Eric Toms, comes up with a question that he thinks that Liz and I should know the absolute definitive answer to so that we are the experts f- to answer this question, which sometimes we are. Sometimes we aren't. I think in this case, I think we are definitely are enough to answer this question. So Liz has this has read this. I read this. I'm going to go ahead and read it here. Here we go i'm getting ready to make a low budget feature with my best friend all oh, we're going to write the script together and we'll share duties produ- duties including producing and directing Ugh. then we plan on selling the film together though we don't know anyone who works in distribution ah my friend has me nervous because they mentioned a contract hmm? but i feel because we're good friends we'll be okay what do you, what would you do before embarking on this endeavor i know the answer liz hit us
0: Yeah, yeah. Contracts. Contracts are really important. Friendship. Friendship is great. I'm glad you have a friend. I'm glad you think you're going to be okay. But I think if anyone listens to the show, they know that both you all and me are very pro contracts. But yeah, what would you do before barking on this endeavor? I mean, it's going and breaking down the roles and responsibilities of you two throughout the film shoot. And it doesn't say whether this is a first feature or not, but if this is a first feature, it may be either consulting with or bringing on a producer who can talk with you about what to expect throughout the pre-production, production, post-production, distribution experience. You can definitely make it up as you go along. But, you know, we have this interview with Chris Perez of Donaldson, Calif, and Perez that's coming out in a few weeks. And he said something really beautiful, which is different people define partnership differently. And you need to figure out how your best friend is defining partnership and how you're defining partnership. Say the quiet parts out loud and figure out exactly how you're going to divide the work. What do you think?
1: I love it. I especially love the thing you just said. Say the quiet parts out loud. For the love of God, anything that you're like at all nervous about, do not bury it. Make sure to voice it, even if it seems embarrassing or silly or that you're going to hurt your friend's feelings. No, say it out loud. So important. Oh, my goodness. This whole question makes me nervous. Because... (laughs) I I've I've co-directed four four things in my life oh my and one we didn't even finish. It was terrible. Uh did not go well at all. And the the first one I was locked out of the edit room because I was apparently like a terrible controlling over voicing like craziness on set apparently. Wait, you? With my Yeah. According to my director, my co- my co- my partners, it was it was a class project with three people, and apparently I was terrible. So the the two no. others locked locked me out of that. They're like, you can't make any more decisions. We're making all the decisions Wait, in the edit. Sorry, you've made two so many people decisions. locked
0: you out. It wasn't one irrational person. They somehow got a second. That is insane. I'm I can't get over that. Okay, <laughs> whatever. That's nuts.
1: And then and then like right after that, me and my friend Isaac, who's been on the show before, we tried to direct something and we fought so terribly <laughs> that nothing got made and we just quit and we were done and we we shot like three like a quarter of a scene (laughs) and not the whole thing and then yeah then i i did one other thing before that with my friend in high school which like I, i for the longest time i said that's the one person i could collaborate with and then he went off and became an architect and like isn't a filmmaker anymore and i'm like damn it now there's my collaborator gone but then i did one with my friend marcella who is a producer on on the alternate and we co-directed the short parka, which is out Mm -hmm. now. And that was super smooth and really wonderful. And I would work with her 1000 times over again. It was a really great experience. So, yeah, but I guess this whole thing is to say it is so dicey making somebody something with somebody else, especially a friend or a family member or or whatever. So like, yes, contract, 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 spell every detail out, make sure that the workload is even because it is so h- easy for someone to do more work than the other person. And then yeah. to immediately feel resent, resentful towards the other person because they're doing more than the other one. And the other one is like not realizing that this is what's happening because to them, they're working just as hard as you are, but then they're not because you're not maybe communicating or showing them or like, I spent I stayed up till three o'clock every day this week working on this thing when they're going to bed at midnight or whatever. Like, you know, what I mean, it's just like yeah. it could get so uneven so quickly. So if you're going to be sharing, producing and directing duties and sharing that credit, you got to have a system and it has to be super clear. So that like you both feel that you're like equally involved and that you one isn't overstepping the other one and that you are a true partnership because it is so easy for this to go south like so, so quickly. So contract, contract, contract.
0: I would also note that this may be a personal qualm or or issue, but don't divide up things by creative and logistic. Like, oh. allow both oh. people to be creative and both people be logistical, right? One person doesn't get to be, like, the zany, mystical director who makes all the, like, esoteric choices about color palette and meaning and theme or what You know, like, really both do both or else that is another pathway to resentment and also as we say many many times producers can be creative directors can be pragmatic and don't fall into that myth that you should divide things up in a in a different way than that
1: yeah you definitely don't do what like a lot of people do which is like, well, oh, you could be the director and I'll be the producer and we'll work together and, you know, it'll both be our thing. But like, I'll be the producer, you'll be the director. Like, don't do yeah. that I- unless you don't care about being the creative. And if you and you actually get passionate about logistics, because some people do get passionate about logistics and they want to be the logistical person in control of all those things. Unless if that's you, then fine. But if it's not and you want to have a creative say, split the roles evenly down like make the other person do the logistics stuff too because that is generally the not the fun part and you don't want one person to be doing more of the fun part than you are you know yeah I think we nailed this (laughs) contracts details write it all out say what you're feeling don't keep it inside oh my god all right well what do you guys think do you agree with Liz and I or do you think hey contracts are for the birds I don't want to offend my friend the friendship's more important than contracts uh, if you dare think this, which you're right to believe that, but if, you, if that's your opinion, I would love to hear it and why. So please <laughs> write us an email to podcast at com, Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies Is Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers lists featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Mark Saltarelli for coming on the show. Thanks to the Austin Film Festival for having us back this year. Eric had a blast. I know. I wish I could have been there next year hopefully and thanks to the omni hotel for hosting us in their podcast room again for a second time thanks to matt johnstone from matt johnstone publicity for setting this interview up thanks to our editor jeff rymoot for doing the editing thanks to robert jones for handling all of our social media and thanks to our producer eric toms for being awesome and for making the trip to austin to record all these wonderful interviews we've got many more from from austin to share thanks to you all for listening and we'll talk to y'all next week
0: should say his name right i should say that might help things if i attempt to do that Something salt out. saltarelli